This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm joined here by my two friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm great. I'm really enjoying my new job as senior correspondent at NCR. It's been wonderful to get back to reporting. I've been working on a couple pieces, so you'll see those shortly. It's all synod prep all the time around the newsroom these days, getting myself booked to go to Rome next month. And I know I'm going to cross paths with Dan while I'm there. And I'm working on some pieces that are in advance of the synod. We'll have more here at the Francis Effect in future episodes. But so work is going well. and. Everything here on the home front seems to be going pretty well. I know I'm enjoying the slower pace of life. Let's put it that way. (laughs) It's been good for my mental health. Slower pace of life, not describing you, right, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) What is that slow pace? I've heard so much about. No, I would love that at some point, but there are... Like there are seasons of weather, there are seasons of time, and and we're at a busy season right now with the continued start of the new academic year. We're we're still in the first month, so that's always a, a busy time. And uh, things are picking up here at the Center for the Study of Spirituality. We've got a number of events. Our first was last Thursday evening. We had a great turnout for uh, a webinar book launch event for Father Jim Martin. Uh, his new book, Come Forth, about Lazarus. It's a great book. I'm biased, but Jim's a friend of mine, but it is also a good book, so I highly recommend it. And then we've got some other events going on this week at the center. By the time this episode drops, one event will have already happened, but keep an eye on our YouTube page for the recording of the event, which is Dr. Rachel Wheeler from the University of Portland is going to talk about eco-spirituality. And then we have another Tuesdays with Merton webinar on Tuesday night. But if those people are listening to us right now on Thursday or Friday morning uh, and happen to be in the greater Phoenix area, I will be there 
uh, to give a lecture uh, tomorrow, if this is Thursday. And what is this? F- let me put it this way. Friday, September 15th <laughs> at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, in Scottsdale, actually, at the Franciscan Renewal Center. So you can go to their website or look at my social media where you can find a link to that. Hope you can join us. So that, in addition to classes and the usual stuff, uh, had a wonderful time this past weekend with my family in New York State to celebrate my brother and new sister-in-law wedding, which was delightful, but also adds to the busyness of some traveling at the beginning of the school year and all of that. So good stuff, all good stuff, just busy stuff. David, I think you've probably got some good stuff and busy stuff too. Yeah, you blink and suddenly it's the third week of the semester and you realize that all of the rhythms are now in place. And so this is the busy time for everything. I'm in full tilt teaching and also uh, overseeing some master's students who are writing their capstone thesis documents. And I'm also working full time producing audio for clients. And so I have a Google calendar where all these things fit in theory (laughs) into the time that I actually have. But some days the kind of trains collide and you find that there's not enough time in the day to get everything done. And so I'm facing a little period right now at the beginning of the week when I'm hitting a lot of things that have to be delivered on deadline and I just don't have enough time. So I'm figuring out ways to create pocket dimensions of time so that I can actually get everything done. But I will say as a person who occasionally talks about neurodivergence and mental health issues, I actually function very well when things are in crisis. Part of my upbringing, I'm wired for this. So my brain feels on board and fully alive at the moment in the way that sometimes when there's a little bit too much free time, it can sometimes get bogged down. So I wouldn't want to live in this state forever, but it is a state where I know how to navigate and everything will get done. I'm really enjoying the fall weather. I love the sunlight. I love the chance to get into the rhythms Fall is always my favorite time of year, so this is a time when I feel I can take a deep breath and, and really experience every moment in a way that I don't always like to. So I'm, I'm feeling okay. And everything in terms of writing and getting projects done, that's all moving ahead. Never as fast as I would like, but it is moving ahead. <laughs> so, David, I love how self-aware you are about your own mental health challenges. And for me, I sometimes am not doing so well. I just go on in in the crisis mode for too long. So I've really enjoyed over the last couple of weeks having things like do yoga on my to-do list. (laughs) And I've been good about taking time in between things. And it's something I've probably needed for a couple of years and I'm really glad I'm able to do. So I know you're good about taking that time when you need it too. Well, and as I was walking this morning with my wife, she remarked that we are a neurodivergent friendly household, but we're all neurodivergent in different ways. So learning how to accommodate someone who is wired very differently from you around like leaving on time or cleaning a particular space or getting a project done in a certain time period, like all of that we have learned to file down the rough edges on. And so whatever self-awareness I have, it comes from trying to be a good parent, trying to be a good partner, and trying to be comfortable in my own skin. So I don't do yoga. Maybe I should, but I really like the idea that yoga is now on your calendar. I think that's fantastic. And Dan, on that front, I want to ask about running. How is that going for you as things are turning to the fall weather? 
Well, I like the fall weather better than the summer weather. So running early in the morning, which is my usual routine, I'm running in darkness where a lot of folks don't, a lot of folks shouldn't because of safety reasons or concerns or personal comfort. But for me, I I feel very uh, comfortable on the trails that I run in that are well lit and are public. And But I like the cool, literal coolness of the weather as opposed to these heat waves we've had the last few weeks hitting 90, pushing 100. Not my cup of tea. Uh, I prefer my cup of iced tea in that weather. So yeah, thanks for asking though. As we're running, let's look to running ahead here on the program today. We've got three topics coming up for you. In the first segment, we're going to be talking about the migration crisis that is continuing and looking at that from a Catholic perspective. In the second segment, we're going to be looking at the ongoing WGA SAG-AFTRA strike in the media industry. And then in our third segment, we're launching something new this season. We're doing an in-depth interview with a guest. Today, we're going to be talking with Gustavo Ariano from the LA Times. So all of that is coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Last week, the Democratic mayor of New York City, the largest city in the United States by population, voiced criticism of the federal government in addressing the influx of migrants and asylum seekers arriving in his city. According to the New York Times, quote, Mayor Eric Adams claimed in stark terms that New York City was being destroyed by an influx of 110,000 asylum seekers from the southern border and said that he did not see a way to fix the issue, unquote. Meanwhile, in the Midwest, Chicago is facing a similar situation. According to WBEZ, Chicago's Democratic Mayor Brandon Johnson is planning to move thousands of migrants from police stations across the city where they are currently residing, quote, into large tents and said it will likely cost more than $300 million to care for the men, women, and children sent to Chicago from the southern border through the end of the year, unquote. This tale of two cities can trace their contemporary humanitarian crisis to the arguably inhumane treatment of men, women, and children at the nation's southern border especially by Texas's Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Abbott, and later Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis following suit, have taken to busing migrants and refugees from their southern states to northern cities in a political move that has angered human rights activists and immigration advocacy groups. While Abbott has been busing people from Texas for almost a year to places like New York, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., and Illinois, just this summer, his administration began busing people to California. According to the Times, Mayor Karen Bass of Los Angeles said of the busing program in June, quote, It is abhorrent that an American elected official is using human beings as pawns in his cheap political games, unquote. According to the Washington Post, the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Archbishop Timothy P. Brolio, has offered only a mild criticism of the Republican governor's actions concerning the migrants and refugees. When asked directly in June by a reporter about the migrant crisis, Brolio responded, 
quote, I suppose if they're transporting them to make a statement, then that seems to me to be problematic, unquote. He added, quote, if you're transporting them because those other states might be better able to respond to the immediate needs, well then, that might be a way of responding to the problem. However, I suspect that it is more to make a statement, unquote. Dan, why don't you get our conversation started? There seems to be a lot in play here. How are you thinking about this issue, especially as it relates to Catholic moral theology? Well, I'm thinking about it on a couple different levels. On the first level, I'm thinking about it on the kind of human scale, right? That this is clearly a tragedy, an ongoing, slow-rolling, trans-state, interstate tragedy. And this has to do with the fact that there are human beings, children and women and men, who are suffering and who are seeking protection, seeking the basic fundamental necessities for human flourishing, which Catholic social teaching makes clear are things that are rights and not privileges. And yet there are people, elected officials and others uh, in this country, and I would extend this in a moment to some of our religious leaders, who seem to reduce basic human rights to privileges that they can mete out as they see fit. And I think this is deeply problematic. So there's the human issue. Jesus makes clear in Matthew 25 and in so many other parables and in his preaching and ministry that we are called to attend to people who are in need right before us, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of our opinions or judgments of them, regardless of their nation of origin or first language or race or gender identity or anything. And so it is a tragedy on the human scale. The second way I'm thinking about this is structurally, we have a real problem here. There is a problem on the back end, as it were, of this narrative, which is what happens when these uh, people who are only seeking the basic kind of fundamental things necessary to survive and for human flourishing cross over our border and begin the process legally, right? Identifying as migrants or seeking asylum who get classified in refugee status. They have certain rights and privileges recognized by international treaties and our own laws. And then they're, as the mayor of Los Angeles, I said, I think said very well, are treated like human pawns. And I know that the mayor of Los Angeles isn't the first person to put it that way, but it seems clear as day to me that's exactly what's going on. To make a political statement, people's lives are being uh, put at risk. And so there are structural issues that are south of the border in, in states and countries where these migrants and refugees are fleeing from for various reasons, political um, unrest, violence, environmental refugees becoming a more common thing too, and people are no longer able to live off the land or to survive or to pr provide for their families. So there are a lot of factors at play here, but I think there's not enough attention being given to what can we do structurally and internationally to help alleviate some of that suffering, to assist our neighboring countries in responding to the things that are leading people uh, out of desperation and out of uh, very thinly veiled hope, right? That it's their last chance, you know? Going back to that human scale thing, I think people who like Governors Abbott and DeSantis who do these sorts of things and dehumanize people in this sort of way forget that this is not just some sort of like luxury lottery shoot that these people are going for to uproot themselves and their families from their homes, from their neighbors, from their loved ones, and to take a very dangerous journey just so that their kids and they themselves as a family might live is, is very serious. And I don't think it's getting the appropriate attention. And I have more to say uh, about the, the American church's response to this, but 
That's how I'm thinking about it initially. David, what, what are you thinking about here? Well, a number of years ago, I produced a documentary for PBS called Divided Families, which was about the migrant crisis at that particular moment and how it was affecting particularly children who had been brought oftentimes against their will by their families, and they were illegally here in the United States, and they had established a life, and they had established families, and they had, in many cases, gotten married and have, had children, and then suddenly found themselves pushed out by the immigration system. And one of the things that we came on again and again in the production of that documentary was this rhetoric that says, why can't they just get in line and do it the right way? And we had expert after expert, immigration lawyer after immigration lawyer saying, there is no line. They have actually taken away the possibility of doing what everybody thinks that you can do, which is to file a form and start a process of becoming a citizen or having sort of legitimacy to be here. And it's even more compounded when you are talking about the idea of asylum. And the people that you're describing, Dan, who are fleeing from very real threats for their families, they come here and it is both an American law and international law that they should be treated as asylum seekers. And instead, they are being treated, again to use that phrase, as political pawns. So it's a compounding of a bureaucratic nightmare where there is no place to actually get in line to do this the right way. It is compounded by people who have given up everything to try and keep their family safe coming here and suddenly being treated again by an institutional system that wants to use them for political gain instead of actually trying to alleviate their suffering. So from the standpoint of Catholic social teaching, there's no way that these governors, particularly governors that claim to be Catholic, can justify what they are doing. And yet, here we are. Well, and I couldn't agree more with both of you, but I can speak a little bit personally as someone who lives in Chicago and who is having people who are being put on these buses and planes and sent to these blue cities. These are my new neighbors and they live in my neighborhood. Many of them are staying in a police station that's within walking distance from my home. They go to school with my kids in the Chicago public schools and the mayor and the older people are working together to find some places throughout the city to at least temporarily house many of these people. And I know some of them are going to be moved out to other suburban cities as well. And one of those places is also within walking distance of my home. So the other night, I have a group of women friends. We get together for happy hour on Friday nights. And we were discussing this because it's part of our everyday life. Many of us are involved in informal or formal ways to charitably bring food to people who are living in police stations right now or to bring donations of clothing and other things that are needed to people who are living in larger group areas. One member of my happy hour group is a principal and she already has many students coming into her school and is open to having more even uh, come to her school. And I can't remember which person said it, but I'm just going to steal it. But she said, this has the potential to dramatically change our city for the better. So influxes of immigrants are what make this country great and have made this country great over different waves of different kinds of immigrants from different places. When you think of the kind of people and what they had to overcome to make it first to our border and then, like you said, to have these Catholic governors put them, many of them don't even know where they're going, be put on some transportation to a city in the north somewhere, 
these are people that could really contribute and who I think have a lot to bring to our country. And we're, quite frankly, excited about the possibility there. However, it's not always being handled smoothly in our city. And I could say more about that and the differences between charity and systemic solutions. But I wanted to say that at the upfront. I'm excited to have some new neighbors. Well, and I just wanted to quickly say I'm so happy that Francis is a pope from the global south because he has seen the situations that are driving some of these forced migrations. And when Pope Francis says, todos, 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 everyone, 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 we should be thinking as Catholics, that includes our migrant neighbors, just as you're saying, and we should be welcoming them as neighbors. Yeah, and I think what you say, Heidi, is really important. And that's when all things align well, when people are welcomed by cities and welcomed by nations, and there is a structure in place to do that. I think this is part of the structural issue at hand. So I grew up in a city called Utica, New York, in central New York State, very famously known for being a hub of refugee relocation in the 1990s, beginning with the Bosnian War in Eastern Europe and continuing through Burma and Ethiopia and a lot of other places over the years. There was a great book published a couple of years ago. I wrote a column about it actually called City of, of Refugees. And then there have been two documentaries that have been produced about the city of Utica. So I remember when the Syrian refugee crisis was unfolding during that war, which is the civil war, which is continuing to still harm thousands and thousands of people overseas. And the Trump administration at the time was refusing to accept any Syrian refugees. NPR did a story about Utica and, and how Utica had an infrastructure ready to welcome folks and to collaborate both in terms of city resources, but also charitable resources like you're describing. But the key thing there is that this was over 30 years, a city that built itself precisely on this vision that you rightly described, that we are a nation of immigrants and that we should support one another, especially those who are facing war and violence and oppression and the like. And so I think that's great. What I understand people like the mayors of Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York, what they're saying in part is they do not have the infrastructure in place. Nobody has consulted them. These Republican governors in Texas and Florida are using this as a political gesture and to putting people's lives at risk, sending them to places out of spite and to make a point. And thank God there are people like you, Heidi, and your friends, and thank God there are people like we read about last summer out on Cape Cod that, that would open their doors to people and do exactly what Jesus calls us to. That's not the problem. The problem is there is no structure in place to attend to this, and they're making a point using human lives, and it's disgusting. And I think what needs to be done is developing a, a system where people can be welcomed into our communities um, as they ought. Yes, I agree. And certainly not every single person in Chicago agrees with my open welcoming uh, attitude. And that doesn't mean that necessarily we have to be for like completely open borders or anything either. On the other hand, sometimes structures have to be created in the immediate. And I completely agree that people especially these two Catholic governors we're talking about, are using this in a political way, and these are people's lives, and it's completely wrong. On the other hand, there is something to be said for my friends and I are talking about the immigration problem because it's very real to us now because of the people who have come to our city. And when they were all in Texas and on the border, it was not as uh, viscerally real as it is when they're in my neighborhood. And so 
I think the way that they ended up in Chicago is wrong. But now that they are here, I'm really working both through charitable institutions, but also politically to try to create those structures. Now, what I've observed about charitable response is overwhelming. And I think I've mentioned on the show last year about this Facebook group I'm involved in that's all these mostly women coordinating donations. And literally, you'll have Facebook post that says, I need work boots for 20 guys who got a construction job. And everyone just goes on Amazon and buys them and gets them delivered right away. And it's amazing. But charity can only go so far. And we really need our governments to be creating those structures that you were talking about, Dan, that, that Utica had to be able to respond to this. And that's the part I'd like to see our church a little more involved in. I see churches having clothing drives and this sort of thing. But I'd like to see more involvement in the politics. And like you said, David, following the leadership of our Pope. Well, and I also want to just alert listeners to the way in which reactionary forces can come into these sorts of conversations about caring for the vulnerable. We have a a hotel on the eastern part of our neighborhood here in Hyde Park, and it has been proposed that that could be a destination point for some of these refugees. And in the days before that was getting started, I noticed an uptick on social media sites like Nextdoor, people who were not part of our neighborhood, but were coming in and ginning up a kind of fear, a not in my backyard kind of approach of, well, this is going to lower your property values, or you don't know who these people are. And, and so we should be aware that we can also be used as pawns in these larger political machinations from people who want to see a world that is more divided and a world that is more fearful. David, at the outset, you talked about the current president of the USCCB, Archbishop Brolio, his response when asked by reporters about the situation on the southern border and the busing of people. And he gave what I think has universally been described as a mild or kind of insufficient response. I certainly would put myself in the position of recognizing it as insufficient and that he would des- he described the situation as, quote, problematic. And, and what really upset me about that, the more I think about his tepid response at best, is that if a reporter had asked him what he thinks about legal access to abortion in this country, he would have a lot more to say about that life issue than just problematic. This is a, also a life issue. This is a pro-life issue. And to have this sort of laissez-faire, not really my problem, I guess it doesn't look great. Maybe there are alternative reasons why these governors are doing this. Maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt, which is a sort of way of reading between the lines in the remarks that he made. He would never in a million years say something like that around the issue, for instance, of abortion. I would say the same thing. I don't think he would speak out as strongly on the issue of capital punishment as anti-capital punishment and death penalty activists have pointed out. And as the Holy Father has pointed out, David, you made reference to this. Pope Francis's first pastoral visit outside the Vatican was to Lampedusa precisely because of migrants and refugees and asylum seekers making life-threatening trips for the sake of their own safety and the safety and livelihoods of their families. So the fact that the representative of the U.S. bishops in this country, all he could muster is to describe this as problematic, is really problematic. <laughs> well, I know we were talking at, at the top of the show about our own mental health challenges as well. And 
one thing I'm hearing from folks who are making visits regularly to the places where both police stations and other places where people are being temporarily housed is the many mental health challenges that so many of these families have incurred. Like you said, the human scale of the problem of in their home countries and for Chicago, I know a lot of them um, have come from Venezuela and the serious violence and other uh, problems that they faced in their trips coming here. And then, of course, as you said, being used as political pawns once they reach the border. And so I think in addition to meeting people's um, physical needs, there's so much that's going to be need to be done about both emotional and spiritual needs. So there's a lot we can do here. And I really do believe that if people are looking for a way to put their faith into action, this is a great way to do it, especially if you're living in one of those cities where you are welcoming these new neighbors. To pick up on that, as a person who has navigated with a lot of support, both mental health situations and post-traumatic stress, I will say having to navigate a bureaucratic process when you are feeling the effects of trauma or feeling the effects of a mental health crisis, that can be a kind of damage in and of itself. That can be a damaging experience. So I want to suggest to listeners that one thing that you can do if you are in a position is to go and be an advocate for some of these people as they are trying to navigate these bureaucratic structures that are oftentimes put in place not to give services, but to deny services to those that need them. So help them navigate this so that the services can actually do what we say that they are designed to do. And I know that this is a, a situation that, unfortunately, we will come back to again and again on our program. For right now, we need to leave it here. You are listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. At midnight on May 2nd, 2023, the Writers Guild of America went on strike against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Then, a little over a month later, on July 14th, the Screen Actors Guild joined the strike. A number of issues are at stake for the writers and actors. One issue concerns residuals. Since the 1930s, actors and writers have been paid every time a recording of their work is publicly performed. This negotiated fee, known as a residual, allows for more stability in an industry often marked by long periods between jobs. However, as the industry moved to more streaming-based models, many actors and writers saw their incomes collapse, with residuals now paying pennies on the dollar to their former rates. Another important issue for both actors and writers has to do with the rise of AI or artificial intelligence. Production studios have already begun to experiment with replacing live actors and writers with AI-generated or AI-enhanced content. The striking actors and writers again note that these so-called innovations threaten their ability to make a stable living in the cyclical world of Hollywood media production. With the current impasse, no new media work is being done, and the strike has had major impacts not only on the major studios, but on a number of industries connected to media production work. The longest labor stoppage in the film and television production industry happened in 1988, when the Writers Guild went on strike for 154 days. 
When this episode goes to air, the current strike will have lasted 135 days with no end currently in sight. David, this is a big and admittedly complex situation. What should we look at first here? Well, as I was researching for this segment, one of the things that jumped out to me that I found to be ironic and fascinating was the previous residuals regime where people who are working in a show and then the show goes on break or the show ends and they're waiting for that next work to come in. That previous regime of residuals was negotiated by Ronald Reagan when he was the head of the Screen Actors Guild back in the 1950s. And it's just interesting to me that that someone who is so identified in his later career with strike breaking would have been a negotiator for those kinds of protections earlier in his career. And this is what I think a lot of people misunderstand about this situation. Everyone assumes that an actor in Hollywood is naturally a millionaire and has no financial troubles. But the average actor, the average writer in the Hollywood industry, in the, in the context of Hollywood and the industry of media production, is a person who is working from job to job and oftentimes depends on the union for things like health benefits and other forms of care. And so things like residuals, the ability to generate income when you're not actively working, they became an important part of making the industry itself sustainable. And now that is being interrupted and upset by these new approaches taken by the major uh, production houses. And so As a matter of simply the dignity of working that we talk about in Catholic social teaching and the notion that that people have a a right to have health care and a right to have a livelihood, that is part of what is at stake in these strikes. And we can go into the details about exactly why the strikes are happening, but the the 30,000-foot view is if we really do think that the entertainment that we use to amuse ourselves is important to our lives, then we need to care for the people that create that entertainment for us. Yeah, I was listening to a, a report on NPR yesterday in which they were interviewing a number of people on who were striking and how they were having to survive. I mean, moving back home with their parents, surviving on ramen, having to take, uh, you know, drive Uber and do other things. And it struck me how much like you said, David, it's, they're not millionaires living in the Hollywood Hills. They're gig workers who are barely scraping by. And the role of technology is part of this. And this is affecting a lot of people in jobs outside of the entertainment business. I remember the first time, this was many years ago, I was told as a writer that I would now be selling all rights instead of limited rights you used to sell. Uh, when you did a freelance piece. But because of technology, people who were purchasing my articles then wanted to be able to turn them into whatever they might do on the internet. So as these things shake out, though, you have people who are unable to make a living. What I was going to say, what strikes me, (laughs) there's a pun there. What strikes me about this strike is that in order for a strike to be able to be influential, it has to be coercive. So when nobody's picking up your garbage and it's piling up on your street, you have uh, empathy for striking garbage workers. Or when the trains are not running because the transportation workers are striking, they have this effect. But for me, I don't feel as intimately the loss of the 
work that these people did because so much of it is done in advance. And I'm still enjoying my shows for the most part. And I think we're about to get that here this fall where people are going to start saying, oh, wait a minute, I need these people to do their work. It's affecting my life. Well, I think there's an interesting kind of personal element you've brought, Heidi, that bridges our previous conversation in the last segment to this one, which is what you were reflecting on with you and your neighbors and friends realizing the immediate impact of a crisis that's been happening for many years at our southern border feels differently when it's affecting your local police station and your neighborhood and the resources in the town that you live in. I think there's something similar going on here. I don't want to equate these things as exactly the same, but because they're not. But I do think there is this detachment that's, that takes two things together at once and makes this less, at first glance, makes this less sort of relatable than, as you said, sanitation workers. Or as we're recording this, one of the sort of pressing news items on the horizon is whether or not the United Auto Workers are going to go on strike. Uh, 150,000 people who work for the big three car manufacturers in this country. So this is, this is happening in lots of different ways at a time when post-recession 2007, 2008, the mini-recession we've had in the wake of the pandemic itself, all this turnover in the economy and in the job market has raised a lot of questions and different industries are grappling with it. I do want to come back too, to something that both of you have talked about that I will talk about too, that I've been much more aware of than I think some other people have around the kind of breadth of jobs that are affected and that are involved in media production for television for uh, movies and the like. And it's only because I happen to have some friends who work in that industry out in California and in New York, including a high school classmate who has worked in production and kind of has worked his way up, but is still not living in a mansion in Beverly Hills. I think everybody who doesn't work in on the two coasts in that industry uh, anticipate. But this is true with every field, quite honestly, that people are not involved in. People think people like David and I are living this amazing high life as professors at universities. We're just these very decadently living, very well-paid, which is almost never the case, bougie, tweed-wearing, pipe-smoking, ivory tower-living bozos. And maybe we're bozos, but we're not any of those other things. And yet, there are exceptions to the rule, right? There are maybe 1% of professors in this country have endowed chairs at an Ivy League university and make a lot of money and live quite comfortably. We are not them. And there are people far worse off than people like David and I who are tenured or tenure tracked who are contingent faculty, who cannot afford insurance, who are teaching at several colleges or universities to make ends meet. And yet they have PhDs. They have years of experience. They are brilliant and, and experts in their field. Same thing's true with journalism. Um, Heidi can attest to this in her own field. Not everybody is a Pulitzer Prize winner who works for one of the big newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times. I love Maggie Haberman, but she, I'm sure, gets much a much better salary than the average national reporter at NCR or at the local paper or at even a, a big regional paper. So I, I think, but people will think like, all oh, these reporters, they have it so comfy. This is the same sort of thing with this industry. I think because people see the the glam of George Clooney and Meryl Streep and this kind of stuff and forget that that's the 1%, that most people fill in a whole range of careers. And there are people who work in craft services, who are caterers, and there are people who are security guards on sets, and there are people who clean the bathrooms, and there are people who do day jobs as actors, who work in television programs and on movie sets as extras or as character actors. There is an entire range of people, 
And I think that's to make this more relatable is really important. The other thing I'll add is that work varies <laughs> and, and styles of work vary. And I, I would resist saying one is better than the other is better than another. And I want to pull back to the late 19th century with the birth of what's called modern Catholic social teaching and Leo Thirteenth when he talked about in that first important encyclical letter in the 1890s on the dignity of human labor, that work is a right. It gives us dignity. People have a right to use their creativity and their skills. And we need to honor that. There's a place for that in this conversation. And I haven't heard that lifted up as much. Yeah. yeah. I really like that turn to think about the dignity of work in this context, because I think that there's a trap that we fall into sometimes that work of actors or work of entertainers or work of professors or work of journalists is somehow different from the kind of work that uh, a, a day laborer does or someone who's working in a foundry does. And a place where we saw that really play out is just recently in the Labor Day holiday. If you did any kind of commerce at all on the Labor Day holiday, you interacted with low-level wage workers who were laboring on Labor Day, a day which is supposed to be honoring and giving rest to all workers. And so we still have this notion that there are certain workers that get to take time off. There are certain workers that get to enjoy the benefits of their work. And there are other workers that have to work regardless of what's happening. And the shift in consciousness that we need is we need to think about the solidarity of all people who are laboring, the solidarity of all people who are employed to create either our comfort in a coffee shop or our comfort when we're sitting down on our couch watching entertainment, that there is a legitimacy to organized labor in all of these contexts. Well, and Dan, I'm grateful that you brought up the Catholic social teaching about this, because I think it's something, another comparison you, you made between the people in the entertainment industry and other industries is that we think that everyone's living at this high level and there's lots of lower level, salary-wise anyway, workers. But also, it's a similar thing. It's a part of our Catholic teaching that is not emphasized as much as other parts, as you brought up in terms of the head of the bishop's conference and how he responded to the immigration problem compared to other issues like abortion. And so, again, this very strong Catholic social teaching about the dignity of work and workers is often something that gets lost because all the church is focusing, or at least the church hierarchy is focusing on other aspects of our teaching. So. I'm glad that it serendipitously landed this way. We tried to bring two segments that were part of the news into our podcast today, but it's also two sections of Catholic social teaching that are very important that are too often neglected. Yeah, and, and I think people may be wondering, okay, well, how do I bring my faith into this conversation, particularly around labor and work? And I think this may happen as well. We're talking about big industries such as uh, television and film. And I mentioned already the United Auto Workers in the Midwest in particular. Uh, and that's bound to hit the three of us where we live in the Midwest. I'm just a few miles away at this moment from the border of Michigan, which is the epicenter of American uh, auto industry. Is it, But this happens at other levels too. It happens with local uh, teachers and school districts, and it happens with local police officers and firefighters and first responders and it happens across the board. I come from a family of teachers, and over the weekend while at my uh, brother's wedding, just chatting with the family, you hear about the, the various 
differences district to district in what benefits are available and in the kind of negotiating that has to go on in collective bargaining in order for people to take care of themselves and their families. And yet there's this portrayal oftentimes. I remember this in the late aughts, for instance, Glenn Beck, if you remember him, he used to kind of rail against teachers, demonizing teachers that they're overpaid and had too much power and they got the summers off. Well, most teachers don't have, quote unquote, the summers off. They're teaching summer school. I know that's something my brother does because he has a family to raise, right? And they don't make the kind of money that, you know, millionaires on Fox News like Glenn Beck at the time fantasize that they do. And so I think thinking about, as David said earlier, being in solidarity with those, maybe it's not your field necessarily, but I think the more we can recognize the common good, which is at the heart of all of Catholic social teaching, I, I think that is what can compel us to support, especially when there are ballot measures. If it's a school board decision, if it's a local ballot measure, this applies as well to our earlier segment around refugee inclusion and welcoming. We can be advocates for, for those who are struggling in, in the immigration crisis, but we can also be advocates for our neighbors when it comes to a just wage and a way of life. Well, and one way that listeners, even if you are not involved in an organized labor movement right now, a way that you can be supportive of these kind of Catholic social issues is if you know of an industry, like there's a chain of, of coffee shops known as Starbucks. You may have heard of them. Some Starbucks locations have become unionized and Starbucks as a global corporation is trying very hard to stop that process and to uh, resist the unionization of its various stores. You can do your part by trying to patronize stores that have unionized if you are in the habit of getting Starbucks coffee. And you can be writing to the Starbucks corporation and saying, please value the dignity of your workers and support their right to organize. We can think about ways in which we can participate in commerce such that we can be in solidarity with those that have said the working conditions here are unacceptable and we need to have a change in the behavior of this or that corporation. So there are ways that you can be in solidarity even if you are not part of the organized labor that is striking at that particular moment. I would encourage listeners to pray about it and to find their own level of conscience in terms of their participation. But I think that ignoring it and refusing to pray about it and refusing to engage in a discernment of conscience is turning away from what I would consider to be a Catholic obligation. Well, we have two themes that we've talked about so far that are difficult, <laughs> problematic, as one person put it, definitely challenging, but both draw on our consciences to do something about it in prayer and in solidarity and support to advocate, especially at a structural level. So because of that, I'm sure we'll continue to be talking about these. We'll be looking at the ongoing developments, and we may very well be talking about this in a future segment. But we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll hear Heidi's conversation with Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, but I'm not here with Dan Horan and David Dalt today, although David is working behind the scenes. I'm excited to launch this new interview segment of The Francis Effect with today's guest, Gustavo Ariano. Gustavo is a columnist at the Los Angeles Times. He's a Mexican-American and a Catholic. 
He previously worked as an investigative reporter, editor, and publisher at the Orange County Weekly in Southern California. He's the author of the column Ask a Mexican, which was compiled into a book, and of the book Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. He also has been writing essays for the National Catholic Reporter this past year. Gustavo, welcome to The Francis Effect. Gracias for having me. Oh, we're so grateful that you could be our first guest here. First, I want to offer you condolences on the loss of your grandmother. I enjoyed reading your column about her in the Los Angeles Times and about how food was so important to your celebration of her life. No, thank you so much for that. I mean, it's one of the great things about being a columnist is that you could write stories about your loved ones. And what's interesting, because as a columnist, you're always trying to tell stories that are going to appeal to as many people as possible. So you want to tell the stories of others. But it's usually when you write about yourself, your very personal life, that's when you get the most reaction. So I've been getting so many condolences. She lived to be 100 and she was such an devout Catholic. And so been hearing from people about the devotion, like impressed by her devotion, impressed by her good spirits. She was wonderful. And yeah, I, I, you would assume we would call her abuelita, which is Spanish for uh, grandmother. But now nah, we called her grandma. Oh, I love that. Well, if you don't mind talking about yourself, maybe we could start by having you talk a little bit about why you wanted to become a journalist and how you see your profession now that especially you're doing commentary writing. I think I read somewhere on your blog that you live by that maxim that journalists should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So tell me a little bit about why you wanted to be a writer. I never set out to be a reporter. It's a very long story, but long story short, someone, the founder of the newspaper that I used to edit, OC Weekly, he saw something in me as a 21-year-old that I didn't see, which was that I was someone with a knack for raising hell, especially comforting <laughs> the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Because I went to school, I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker. And writing, I'm from Orange County, California, where you have a lot of comfortable people. And as a child of Mexican immigrants and seeing my mom, she worked at a tomato cannery. My dad was a truck driver. They were blue-collar workers and they worked hard. but I saw what some of my fellow Mexican-Americans had to deal with in terms of discrimination, and I didn't like that. And I luckily, I did not get too discriminated against, at least being Mexican. Everyone bullied me, though, because I was a nerd. So I always had a chip on my shoulder to go after the bullies. If, and once I became more of a voice in Orange County, like I reveled in that. And now with the Los Angeles Times, I want to just tell those stories of marginalized communities and not just Latino communities, anyone who is marginalized. I want to go against the powers that be. And it's just been I never thought I'd have a career in this. And now that I have it, I don't imagine ever finding anything else that would have made me so satisfied as what I do. Oh, great. Well, I know one of the stories that you've covered throughout your career is reporting about and writing about the clergy sex abuse crisis. I know as for myself, as someone who has interviewed victim survivors and helped tell their stories, it can really affect you personally in your own faith. How was that for you writing about clergy sex abuse in the church? This is the 20th anniversary of me starting on this. So I have to write like a 5,000 word essay somewhere about this because I have a lot of feelings. But the short of it is I just was that's when I learned the difference between God and church, God and man, because the faith is the faith and the faith will never 
be torn down by the men who besmirch it. And so early on, I remember just I, born in cradle Catholic. I went to St. Boniface and just remembering how one of our beloved priests, Father John Lenahan, he admitted to uh, abusing teenage girls and the Diocese of Orange had no issue with it. They finally defrocked them when he admitted to my colleague, Steve Lopez, of having a consensual relationship with an adult woman. Like he admitted that, and that was a bridge too far for the Diocese of Orange. So just remember being disgusted by that and not wanting to ever support what is, and it's hard because the church does so much great stuff. It always has. I did a, then this year, there was that tragic murder of one of the bishops in, in the Diocese of LA, Bishop David O'Connell, if memory serves me correct. And just talking to the people and all the witness that he did for communities of color, marginalized communities, black, Latino, it's, there's so much good in the church, but just gets undercut by it. So all I could do is just put my faith in God and specifically La Virgen de Guadalupe and El Santo Niño de Atocha to be that advocate for me whenever I need God to be a little bit nicer to me. <laughs> well, you have such a great perspective because of how rooted you are in Southern California, but even... If you were to look nationally now, Hispanics account for nearly half of U.S. Catholics. But, of course, they're not really represented in church leadership or even in the example that you gave of L.A. Archbishop Gomez. He's not necessarily representative of many Mexican-Americans. And more and more Latinos are leaving Catholicism, some of them, like their Anglo counterparts, to become the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Yeah. So what are your observations about these trends about church affiliation, disaffiliation, especially from your vantage point there in Southern California? Listen to the flock. The flock does not want this orthodoxy that is starting to rise in the bishopric in, among the hierarchy that is American Catholicism. It's the flock that is pushing for immigrant rights. And by the way, also standing up for, you know, standing for life, standing against abortion, like a, a Latino Catholicism, especially Mexican-American Catholicism, it's all intermixed. But a lot of times it's that social justice that is really so important that speaks especially to the younger generation. That's why I think the late Bishop O'Connell was so powerful because here was a man who was advocating for envi environmental justice in South Los Angeles and then leading rosaries outside of Planned Parenthood. It's like, I think with Catholics or with some, sadly, just like this America of ours, far too often we now live in a bifurcated reality where if you're not one, if you're one thing, you can't be the other thing. Uh, I think with Catholicism, you can be a little bit of both. But I think especially with those younger Latinos, they care and just younger people in general, they care about social justice. They care about being with the downtrodden. And again, what, like I would always, what I tell people nowadays is like, when I try to talk to them about my Catholicism, they try to poke holes in it. I'm like, well, all I'm reading is like, I wake up every morning to the daily missile that's emailed out by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And it, it's funny because when I go to, I'll probably write about it for NCR. It's, it's just like when I would go to church, I skipped the first part. I never liked the letters of Paul and all that. I always found him boring. I just go to the gospel and the stuff that Jesus is saying, oh my God. If all we focused on is what Jesus is saying, it would so mesh well with how Latinos feel about Catholicism and their place in the United States today. Excellent. Excellent. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> hey, you know what's coming up for the church at Universal is this synod and the synod of bishops that's the synod on synodality. I know I'm going to be in Rome in October covering part of it. 
And I'm wondering for you as a everyday Catholic in the pew or, or someone who has their finger on the pulse of things in the Latino community or in, in the Western United States and Southern California, what's your vibe that you're getting about the Synod? Are people excited about it? Is it not on their radar? What do you think? They're familiar with it. We see, I mean, this is something, especially going back to progressivism, P- Pope Francis, what I loved about the the talk he gave to those Portuguese Jesuits that got him, is getting him in some controversy. He was funny, but he was also so Latin American. Like he, the jokes he was saying, because we forget now that he's Argentinian. So what he's doing is something that's tr- classic to Latin America progressive movements, an encuentro, basically. That's what it is. Like we are gathering people. We are talking about issues. We're going to figure something out. Then we're going to have an even bigger conversation. So synod, synodality, that is something that is familiar with Latinos. And I think a lot of people have been excited by the idea that, hey, we're not just allowing our church leaders, the official pastors and the priests and the father and the brothers and all of that to have a say into how we're going to express our faith. We can have some say in it as well. Yeah, those of us um, who have been reporting about it, we often hear the Pope say or other people have said it's the Holy Spirit who's leading yes. the, the Synod and we'll have to see. So what are your thoughts about Pope Francis? We're a podcast who's named <laughs> that's named after him and one of our hosts is a Franciscan. So what do you think about this Pope and is he speaking to you personally or to the people you know and the people you write about? He is so incredible. He is funny. Again, like we were all proud. So many of us were proud when a Latino became bishop. The first time since what? The, the lot was Alexander, really bad. The last Spanish priest, which was absolutely horrible. So, hey, now we get a good one. But he's funny. He and more than anything, again, I just love his emphasis right from the start. We should have the scent of our flock on us. Be on the streets. Be talking to the hoi polloi, so to speak. Push always, like really just advocate and, and everything he, I mean, have I agreed with everything? Of course not. You're not going to agree with everything. Have I agreed with more than most uh, th- uh, things that he said? Yeah, absolutely. Like I stay up now to watch Christmas mass. I mean, I was used to as a point of habit, but I wouldn't really pay attention to either John Paul II or Benedict would say, if I'm listening, I'm riveted to everything that Pope Francis is saying. He's hilarious. He's super smart. And may God bless them with more years. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that whole like smell of the sheep, go to the peripheries and talking to the everyday people on the street. Because I feel like that's so much of what you do with your writing, too, and the stories that you tell in the L.A. Times and elsewhere. You're really trying to get the voices and the stories of everyday people out there for people to be inspired by. Would you look back at all and tell us what are some of the favorite stories that you've been able to tell over the years? Oh, geez. Again, my coverage on the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal in Orange County was just so formative to me and also brought just so much good to the survivors in the face of so much evil. So that will be forever my crowning achievement. But like even something as simple, I I was a food critic for 17 years. So something as simple as writing a food review and then getting a phone call the next day from the owners crying on the phone saying, I have a line out the door thanks to you. I was this close to closing. Now I know because you have said good words about me, I will be able to be okay. That to me is just so powerful. I, <laughs> I Right now, as we're talking, I'm running, I, every year I do a tortilla tournament. So think of like NCAA basketball final four. 
64 tortillas, 32 corn, 32 flour. And I've been doing this for six years. So I have seen winners start from small mom and pop operations to now have eight restaurants because they I was able to give them publicity through this tortilla tournament. I think I saw something about that tortilla competition on your Twitter. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a food writer what his favorite food was or favorite recipe. <laughs> well, of course, Mexican food, because that's what I grew up with. My last meal would have to be it's called asado de boda. So it's going to be a mole. So like a beef stew that's traditional to where we're from in Mexico, uh, the state of Zacatecas, with a slice of capirotada. And capirotada is the Lenten bread pudding that Mexican-Americans specifically do only during Lent, only on Friday. I wrote an essay when my mom was passing away from ovarian cancer four years ago. I wrote an essay about how that was my all-time favorite dessert, and I would always get mad at my mom because she would only cook it during Lent. But now in her dying days, I got why she did it only during Lent because it's, it's symbolic of Christ and the resurrection and his crucifixion. So with those two dishes, and every, every mom makes the best capirotada around, but my mom made the best capirotada around. <laughs> well, is there anything else, Gustavo, that you'd like to add or anything you'd like our listeners to know? or any advice you could give to the church and church leaders about how they could better <laughs> serve or be of service to Latino Catholics in the U.S.? Any other final parting words? Just, again, listen to the flock. Listen to what we're doing. Listen to our struggles. Listen to what we want. It is within our culture to be Catholic because the church conquered us, but then Mother Mary gave us that salvation, and we are forever indebted to her. But if you have people straying from that social justice message, then it doesn't surprise me if people are not going to the church. Like the Catholic Church in the United States now, I compare them to the Republican Party in that Latinos could have easily gone to the Republican Party. R Reagan knew it. Nixon knew it. Reagan famously said that all Latinos are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. So you have this natural population there for various reasons. But then you go and blow it. The Republican Party blew it with xenophobia, just rank xenophobia, especially from California. Sure, there's more Latinos kind of going Republican now, but they could have had this decades ago. Same thing, same thing with the American Catholic Church. Better writers than myself have written about how American Catholicism has so actively tried to alienate Latinos from Archbishop Lamy doing the cathedral in Santa Fe, building it like Notre Dame instead of trying to build it Adobe style in Santa Fe to the decades of Irish bishops in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles culminating with uh, Cardinal McIntyre just hating anything Mexican. We've had so many opportunities and you, the American Catholic Church, have blown it. Listen to what Francis is saying, because frankly, your future depends on it. The faith is always going to be there, but th that doesn't mean the American Catholic Church has to be there. Well, great advice, and I hope people are listening. I know our listeners will be appreciative of hearing from you. Thank you again, Gustavo, for coming on The Francis Effect and sharing some of your experiences with us. We really appreciate it. Gracias for having me. I appreciate it. Hello, this is David again. The full version of Heidi's interview with Gustavo Ariano is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. For Heidi and Father Dan, I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of The Francis Effect Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The 
Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.